Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Mark, I have a background in English literature and storytelling. I'm Charlene, and I have a background in social work and psychology, and I also have a cold. Yes. This week, we're sick, so uh, we apologise in advance for any coughing and sneezing that doesn't get edited out, but it should be okay. But if our voices sound weird, that's why. Mostly Charlene's. I'll probably be sicker next week, so you have that to look forward to. In all seriousness, this week we are talking about the TV show Russian Doll. This is going to be an interesting one. We're still trying, as if you listen to the episode on The Mandalorian, you know we're trying to redo our format a little bit to be a little bit shorter and a little bit less rambly. We'd love to hear any feedback you guys have on that. Russian Doll is such a weird show that seems to go all over the place and deal with so many things that keeping it down to less might be interesting. So we'll see how that goes. This is obviously going to include spoilers for the first season of Russian Doll. As with last week, there won't be spoilers for season two because we haven't seen it because it's not out yet. But they are doing a season two and we will be theorising a little bit on what might be in that, probably. If we have any other spoiler or content warnings, which will have content warnings for this, I feel, we'll drop those in right here. Hello from the future. We're very light on spoiler warnings this week. In fact, I don't have any. I, on the other hand, have several content warnings. During the course of Russian Doll, to the surprise of no one who has watched the show, we will be talking about various mental health issues, including depression, suicide, drug abuse, psychotic episodes, and then also discussing neglect and details of gruesome deaths and other body horror. So if those are things that bother you, this might not be the right one for you to listen to. I think that's it. And back to the past. Welcome back. Okay, you want to do the brief summary? Sure. So season one of Russian Doll starts out by following a woman named Nadia on her 36th birthday. She's getting out of the bathroom at her birthday party and dies pretty quickly in that evening and then kind of resets back at that bathroom in the same moment that the show opened on. She proceeds to die several times in lots of different ways on this exact same day that seems to start the same way. Then at the end of episode three, during one of her deaths in an elevator, she realizes that there's someone else that the same thing has been happening to, someone else who keeps dying on the same day and resetting at the same time. So from that point, the rest of the season follows both of them as they try and figure out what's going on with them continually dying and restarting that same day. Okay, so for the first sort of theme slash story element, which I guess is also sort of a storytelling device as well. I wanted to talk about the way that Nadia and Alan are set up as an interesting dichotomy, both uh, fulfilling the roles of like man of science versus man of faith, but also casting those roles as gamer versus programmer. Mm. Programmer versus gamer, I guess. Mm -hmm. A sort of an interesting take on that. Get to respond? Sure. I think that what a lot of that comes down to is also related to their being set up as sort of chaos and order also, mm. or like ascribing meaning versus not ascribing inherent meaning into things. Yeah. So Alan finds it comforting to structure his existence as much as possible and, you know, try and strive for set milestones and boundaries that have been externally communicated to him as, like, indicators of success or of doing well and, you know, being on the right path. He talks about, like, 
he's been in this relationship with Beatrice for like nine years and is going to propose to her. But as you learn over the course of learning more about his life, that relationship hasn't been happy for a long time. And she's been cheating on him for a long time, but hasn't known how to tell him about it. But he's kind of known that the relationship wasn't healthy. And he says, finally, toward one of the points where, you know, they're really starting to make some growth and, and you know, get into a little bit of introspection, realizing what they're doing. He says, like, he's basically been avoiding, you know, recognizing the problems in his life by thinking if he put in the time, if he did the right things at the right time, that it would all work out. So he's put a lot of faith in structure. And when he keeps dying, he concludes that he's being punished for doing things wrong. Whereas Nadia, who is a programmer, views this as a bug in the system, like that this is not something that's her fault, but that it's something that if she can understand how it works, she can fix it. Because that's the approach to life that she has, that she makes the choices, and if there's an issue, she'll deal with it when it comes up. Yeah, we don't really get too much from Alan about actual religion, per se. He says God's punishing him. Right. But, like, we don't get much of an insight into what religion he may or may not follow. But he does sort of seem to have this just sort of, oh, it's a purgatory type thing, or this is hell. There's the... Nice moment where Nadia sees his apartment and was like, well, this seems like hell. Yeah, because it's so clean and, like, organized and... I would happily live in either of the places that those people start off, to be honest. Yeah. I know that you would probably be repulsed by Alan's place. Alan's place is very linear, predictable. It's very expected. It's like somebody looked at an Ikea demo setup room or whatever and then just just like i'm just gonna do that you know well it's pragmatic yes his whole thing is about efficiency and doing things exactly right Mm -hmm. um because that that's his take on the whole thing is oh well i can i i get to keep doing this so i can make it perfect yeah and like he has ideas of what being good means and what Mm -hmm. this is for external to him like he stands there and waits to make sure that he can hold the door open for mm-hmm. his elderly neighbor and things. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does see it as something that can be perfected through iterations. Yeah, whereas Nadia just does different, does it differently every time. Well, I mean, yeah, to like to take a moment to talk about like Nadia and religion, like as as her like setup as her relation to religion, like one of the ways that she responds to being in the death cycle. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a. 18-year-old's name for their motorbike. Or any emergency room neighbor for, uh, worker name for... Anyway, she's like, oh, it's a Jewish building. Maybe it, there's some weird haunting thing and goes and, like, investigates that. But she has a comment on religion where she's, like, dismisses it as being racist and sexist and there's no money in it anymore. Yeah. So, like, we, we don't have any sort of questions as to her buying into that. Although it does, she might have been raised Jewish, because she mentions that her parent, her grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Yes. And she lives in an old yeshiva building, or yeshiva? An old, an old yeshiva. That's not her building, that's... Um, oh, that's Maxine's building. Yeah. yeah. That's where the party takes place. But she does... We'll come back to it later when we're talking about another thing, but there is sort of a buy into that when she's talking to the woman at the synagogue mm-hmm. who does the prayers for her and there's the whole thing about angels are all around us or mm-hmm. angels are all around me. No, angels are all around us. I was right the first time. We can edit it so I don't sound stupid. You're not going to edit it so I don't sound stupid, are you? Cool. Um... Well, and she tries to get the woman who's assistant for the rabbi to say the prayer for those who have died for her. 
Yeah. Because she has died, and because she knows she's probably going to die again soon. Which is interesting because she doesn't seem to buy into these religious things, but also seems to kind of want that comfort anyway. Yeah. I feel like I've lost track of your original question. So, I mean, I, I wanted to sort of look, look at those, like, the faith versus science side of things, mm-hmm. to then look at the way that fits in with the gamer programmer thing. Mm-hmm. With the idea, like, it's very much put out as Nadir is a programmer who designs games, mm-hmm. Alan is a gamer who plays games. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you get some interesting scenes with him where he keeps dying in the video mm-hmm. game, yeah. which is a, perhaps a little on the nose. And gets very frustrated. I think one of the most interesting things about those scenes is that he gets really angry and like lets go of his control in a way that you don't see him do when he like actually dies and comes back in the bathroom or when other things that are frustrating in his life happen until Nadia kind of destabilizes his rhythm. And so it's it's a glimpse into what he, like, the impulses that he's constraining all the time. Because we know from his conversations with Beatrice and also when he visits the, I guess it's like a nurse that he knows or something at a clinic. That I think it's his mother. Is that his mom? I assume so. Oh. I thought it was a doctor or something. I think his mother is a doctor. Oh, okay. But we know from, like, conversations that he has with Beatrice and I guess maybe his mom or doctor or whoever that woman is that he talks to, that he has a history of depression and self-destructive behaviors that he's he seems to be controlling through a very regimented existence. And mostly what the only ways that you see the deviation from that in response to the constant dying and acknowledgement that long term none of that matters is that he eats cake all the time, which he presumably doesn't normally do. And when he dies in the video game, he gets pissed and like throws things and stuff and like sort of has little mini tantrum-y responses. So it's it's interesting because Beatrice is like worried to tell him that she's cheating on him because she thinks he might hurt himself. Which turns out to be a fair assessment because his first death was a suicide after that conversation. So she was, you know, right to be concerned about that. But you don't, you see him adhering so strictly to like a formula for his life. And it, in the video game scenes, you see what he's trying to not to do, in, you know, by coping with that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think I've just said that like four times and I'll just have to cut it down. Sorry. I don't know. One of the really interesting scenes as far as this goes is when you get the discussion between them about the game that Nadia designed, mm-hmm. um, which for a brief moment, like it's the the show takes place in like the late nineties, based on the video game that she designed, it's very strange. Well, it's uh, an old game. It's not. An, it was one of the first games that she played or that she designed when she was twelve. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, she may have done that one by herself. Yeah. Like that may. It, I mean, and there's a whole retro gaming thing yeah. where people are designing it. Anyway, yeah. I'm just being snotty. It's fine. But he, she's clearly a death in that game, though. It, it could be her. It could be her mother. That's true. But he says that it's impossible. Like you can't win, and the programmer never played their own game. Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting statement based on the deaths in the real world that mm-hmm. he can't seem to win, and perhaps his take on God at that point. Mm. I think that there are some strong parallels you can draw between, or like, the question of whether you're a gamer or a programmer in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think, because this might seem like a leap, I want to say, like, as far as the sign that the world is intended to be seen as analogy for, an analogy for that, there's the artwork on the wall of the party mm-hmm. that's the molecules, and Mike's trying to, un- like, 
explain it and being all pretentious. He says that it's about AIDS. Yeah, and or like that's that's why yeah, like you don't get any of the decent criticism and stuff anymore. But uh, when you like when Alan gets really close to it and you sort of get this steady zoom in, you see that these molecules or life is built mm-hmm. up of lots and lots of numbers or a code. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a fairly valid argument for there being a code to life in the same way as there is programming. Well, and there is. I mean, we know that there is because there's DNA and RNA and all of the molecules that are necessary for life. Right, but my point is within the story of the show, like Mm -hmm. the creators have shown you this image that serves... Mm -hmm. Like, there's never a time when he goes, I was looking at those numbers and I realized it was my phone number or something. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not another meaning to that. Mm -hmm. But then Nadia is able to take her knowledge as a programmer and her knowledge of science to an extent, mm-hmm. and start to control the universe around them. They are not entirely subject to the world that they're in. They ha- have influence on things, um, which you see when... It's it's sort of played off as a joke and kind of silly, where it comes out that both of them are allergic to bees. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, what, are we going to walk into a swarm of bees now? Mm-hmm. And then they walk into a swarm of bees. So like, you start to see their ability to have an effect on the world and of their own situation. They're not NPCs. Hmm. It's interesting that you interpret the bees thing as them having caused it by acknowledging that possibility. Because while it is super unlikely, it's also not the first time there was like an opportunistic thing that's like, well, this will kill both of them because they're conveniently right here and the world is trying to kill them. With the, like, refrigerator, or, like, with the, like, air conditioning unit or whatever falling off of the building and smashing them. I think that there is more agency involved than you might suspect. Because there are several times when, like, at least one of them dies in a kind of stupid or fluke way all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. Like tripping over the grate cover in the sidewalk. Yeah. Or, um, like... There's a point at which Nadia just, like, has a stroke or a heart attack or something. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a heart attack, and then she has an asthma attack, despite having no history of asthma, and her friends are very confused. They're like, why didn't you tell me you had asthma or something like that, I think Maxine yeah. says. It's like, because <laughs> I didn't have a history of asthma. Also, that's not helpful right now. Yeah. But my suspicion is that, like, when one of them is dying that way, the other one is dying in a more because-you-did-this sort of a way. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, um, they compare deaths. I forget. Like, like they like return, you know, they've died, they've reset, they go back to meet one another and just, like, exchange updates of what happened. And I'm trying to remember when they do that, if one of them, it's, like, some sort of random body thing. Well, one of them was hit by a car, I think. Uh, I think there's a point at which Nadia turns up and she's had something like a heart attack. It's mm-hmm. something like just, what the hell? Like, I couldn't mm-hmm. have done anything about that. Yeah. And the thing that happened to Alan. Alan was that he was hit by a car because he got really fucking drunk and rode a bicycle around New York. Yeah. Which was much more of a, you respond to this in this way, this, that, that. So mm-hmm. this happened. But they're entangled in a weird way. And so what happened, like... You know, going back to, well, I'm sure we're going to get to some, you know, interesting properties of space and time, but they seem to be quantum entangled in a, in terms of their state of being alive or being dead, in that they have to die at the same time and come back at the same time. And so if one of them does something to trigger a death, it cascades to the other person, even if that means something unexpected that is in the internal environment of their body. Yeah. 
I think, so if we take it as the world being very similar to a video game, mm-hmm. which I realise that we did similar things with Mandalorian talking about, well, that was really about how it was written, whereas yeah. this is drawing analogies to video games. Um, I think it's much easier to understand it as being, like, if, if the Mandalorian's a follow quest, mm-hmm. that, or, a, yeah. This one's more like Limbo. Well, it's a, um, it's a co-op game. Yes. And if one of you is running around in circles staring at the floor mm-hmm. or trying to grab all the med packs mm-hmm. and the other one is charging into battle, mm-hmm. then both of you are going to die. Different mm-hmm. ways, but like you have to work together for it. Mm-hmm. And I think this conversation leads pretty well into like a larger context of an analogy of the world and the universe as a simulation being generated by something else that only has a set amount of capacity like to generate the world and when you strain it by acting outside of the parameters it's set up to handle it starts to break down in other ways to compensate so you definitely see that with things just disappearing and that happens kind of slowly over time and it's interesting that you don't really notice it or at least I didn't notice it until the point where I did not notice how widespread it was until the point that the characters also are noticing how widespread it is. And like the people at the party, when Nadia spawns, it's visibly a less well-attended party. And I, I know I made this analogy to you off air, but when a person is losing their hair, it's not generally apparent to an observer or even necessarily the person whose hair it is until about 50% of it is gone just because of the way we perceive things and like density of small things in a cl- in a group. Mm. But just because you can't tell doesn't mean it's not happening and it's a process that's ongoing and once it hits a certain threshold it becomes observable. Yeah. Even if it was running in the background the whole time. And I think that's what's happening in the series. I think for each of her resets there's probably like one or two of those party extras not on the set. And maybe one or two you know, decor items that are not there as things go on until you get to the really dramatic point where like hardly anything in the world will load per se. And you have the totally empty apartment with Maxine just like dancing in a circle, physically incapable of leaving the apartment and aware of that and like Mm. seemingly kind of scared where it's like she's an NPC, but she's now gained awareness because she doesn't have the things to interact with that she's supposed to be able to interact with it becomes somewhat jarring. I do want to just put a quick note in for people who might not play as many video games as, I guess, me slash you. NPC non-playable character. Yeah, so like a person who's in the world but is just programmed to do a set series of things yeah. and you can interact to an extent. Those Skyrim um, guards, guards that when you were walking by say, I was an adventurer once and then I took an arrow to the knee. Like, yeah. that's an NPC. Yes, and a small bug in the code as it happens. Uh-huh. But uh, But the other thing is like, if your computer isn't up to scratch for the game that you're playing, or if the game is trying to be too ambitious with whatever processor it's got, you'll find that like maybe you're in a room with ten people, but some of them haven't loaded properly, so you can't see them unless you get nearer to them. Or like sometimes the graphics will be off and people's faces won't appear properly and things like that. So it seems like there's some sorts of parallels <clears throat> with people not appearing in that. Yeah, and I think that's even further highlighted by the mirrors being one of the early things to be noted as disappearing. You, I think you get the pets first. You get, like, her cat, Oatmeal, and his fish, whose name I can't remember, and um, things like that, which makes sense because those are things that move 
but also mirrors and reflective surfaces are some of the hardest things to render in any sort of believable way Mm. because of all of the physics involved in getting those reflections to be accurate with other stuff that's also there in that same virtual space. And of course, mirrors come up a lot in this. And so I think it's it's just one of those things where they're really drawing your attention to some of the things in the world that are way more that might seem mundane, but are actually really complicated under the surface. It is interesting the first things that disappear because well the the first hint that you get that there might be something going on is um in episode one. Mm-hmm. Like Nadia's been looking at the fish at the party mm-hmm. and asks Maxine... Didn't you used to have, have more, more fish? fish? <clears throat> and Maxine's like, no, some of them dead. But then the first things that Nadia and Alan notice have disappeared, or see disappear, are Oatmeal, the cat, mm-hmm. and Alan's ring, mm-hmm. which are both such key parts of their narratives. Right. Like, it's not like something is disappearing off in the background. Like, in episode two, you see that there are some flowers decaying. It's very mm-hmm. much shown. And I think that there are less people on the street already in episode two. Mm-hmm. But for those, like, I know, it's almost as if quest items are the first thing to disappear in the video game. Mm-hmm. So that seems kind of strange. And it could be an indication of them being sort of misaligned with what the game or the world thinks that they're supposed to be doing or was set up for them to do. Well, it's interesting because I think that the ring is a better sign of, like, Alan, like, working to getting away from what he's struggling with because he throws the ring away Mm -hmm. and then the ring is gone. Yeah. Um, One thing I wanted to check with you on is Nenia gives her Krugerand that Mm -hmm. she wears around her neck, which is a nice little symbol of, like, all the... Issues with her mother. Yeah, her um, baggage. Yeah, she hands her baggage off to Horse. Mm-hmm. Does it come back when she dies? I think it doesn't until their like final reboot when they feel like they've fixed the bug and they come back and everything is rendered properly in the world. Like all the people are at the party and all that stuff. It's back in episode seven. Are you sure? Pretty sure. But I think it doesn't come back straight away. I think when she's dealing with the stuff related to her mother, it reappears. Hmm. Which is interesting. To clarify, for people who haven't seen Russian Doll, by the stuff she was dealing with with her mom is the 36th birthday, which is the day that she keeps reliving, is particularly significant because at that point she's reached an age older than her mom ever did. Her mom died or committed suicide or something before she turned 36, and her mom had a history of mental illness. It looks like it was maybe some form of schizophrenia, but something that definitely involved some psychotic features. And uh, distorted perception of reality. And Nadia ended up living under the guardianship of Ruth, who was a psychologist or therapist who was trying to help her mom and make sure that Nadia, you know, was getting food and things like that. And so the baggage she's trying to deal with is feeling like she abandoned her mom because not long after she went to live with Ruth, Ruth, her mom died. So she feels like she killed her mom by not, you know, staying under her care despite her being incapable incapable of taking care of a child. Yeah. And I want to come back to that in a decent amount of detail. Just so people aren't totally lost. Oh, yeah. Just when it comes to the time and sort of the decay stuff mm-hmm. and just how the timelines work, I think Horse is a really interesting character in that. Okay. Because the first time that Nadia sees him, she says, I think I know that guy. 
Yeah. But there's no evidence that she's ever met him before at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, like, there are several interactions, and he never seems to know her. He seems to ha- play out a very mm-hmm. similar interaction with her each time. Mm-hmm. That sort of comes back to this, I want to cut your hair thing. Mm-hmm. But it's almost as though horse isn't part in place in time. Does that make sense? Because he, he it, like, he's the only thing that in that first moment through, the first pass through, that she has some sort of, like, that's happened before. And that's before she dies. Mm-hmm. And I think that that might be the first breakdown of her linear awareness of only one timeline at a time. And this leads in pretty well to a conversation about time and the many worlds theory that okay. I wanted to have as part of this discussion. Are we good with leaving behind our previous discussion of, like, the world as a rendered video game and, like, them as being player characters as opposed to NPCs and stuff like that? I think that the only other thing that I wanted to mention in that... I mean, we might cycle some back to some stuff because, I mean, the problem with this show is that so many things are interconnected that right. trying to break this down into subjects is difficult. But just tied into that, and it might be something that you can talk to a little bit, is you get very few interactions between the timelines mm-hmm. of, like, there's the thing, like, their action to throw out the ring mm-hmm. means that the ring isn't there. The Krugerrand might disappear for a while. And also, after she drowns, mm-hmm. when she, she comes back... She coughs up water. She coughs up water. There's no other time when there's anything tied like that. Like, she does sort of have this comment about the fact that dying many, many times is traumatic, and she's dealing with that, so there's the mental hangover. Well, she also, in season seven, which has a lot of body horror, if anyone... uh, Sorry, in episode seven, which has a lot of body horror, there's also the point at which she starts, like, coughing up blood, and then she pulls a piece of glass out of her throat. Um, which is another indication of something held over from a previous, like, a non-contemporaneous time. I think that's the signal of something else, but from, we'll talk about from it From her mother breaking all the mirrors when she was yeah. a child. I think that's a sign of something else, but we'll come back to it. Okay. So yeah, p- p- please talk about mini worlds. So, okay, this is going to get really weird and complicated. For people who aren't familiar with mini world theory, it's this idea that every single time something could happen in multiple ways, the universe or the timeline splits so that there is a universe in which each of those possible outcomes plays out and those timelines split etc so if you rolled a six-sided die you would get a split into six and the many worlds theory is an idea that like there are sort of timelines layered on top of one another and in some places you might have continuity across them like the holes in swiss cheese so you might have some of the same events concurrent in lots of different timelines so here's where I'm going to get very weird. You're already very weird. Okay. okay. I haven't really looked into this in a long time, but back when I was more into um, practical mysticism and things like that, I was also doing a lot of reading about perception of reality and human, like human limitation on perception of reality as an evolutionary adaptation. So physicists tell us that all times are contemporaneous. Everything is happening all at the same time. The past and the future and now are all one singularity. Time is a four-dimensional solid, etc. And that our perception of time as a linear thing that has a past and a present and a future is a function of the way that our consciousness makes sense of the world. It's not helpful for us to be fully aware of all times and spaces at one time because we would just be paralyzed. We wouldn't do anything. We wouldn't be able to exist in that world in any sort of 
active way. So some of the reading when I was, you know, more involved in like functional mysticism and like magic talks about that same idea of humans potentially having to a greater or lesser extent, some awareness of the future that is functionally screened out of our awareness because it would paralyze us into inactivity. If you were mm. con- if you were always aware of the future, even if it was just short-term future, you would be likely to be so preoccupied by it that you wouldn't actually do anything and you would just die. So, it's to our advantage as an organism to be blind to all but the most salient timeline that we're experiencing. So sometimes when I think about this, I think that maybe in some cases when people f- have a weird feeling of like invulnerability, that it may be because there's some awareness that some version of the timeline always has you continuing to exist. And the ones in which you don't continue to exist, there's no awareness for you to have of those timelines. Hmm. So in this, you have somebody who is showing maybe some indication of being aware of multiple timelines in which she makes different choices, speaking specifically of Nadia. And we see that she has a death wish. Her friend Maxine calls her a cockroach and says nothing can kill her. And so to me, that ties into that idea that there is some element of Nadia's consciousness that knows she will always survive in one timeline or another. Her consciousness will persist, even if it's not necessary. There is always a timeline in which she lives, basically. Yeah. So if you take that idea and you see all of these deaths, that is her being sequentially aware of concurrent timelines that in which she dies in a whole bunch of different ways and which she normally wouldn't have a conjoined awareness of, if that makes sense. Yeah. And the same thing for Alan, which I, th- I think is the best way that this kind of makes sense to me. Like, all of these timelines are happening at the same time, but somehow she and Alan have an expanded consciousness of all of those possible concurrent timelines that usually people don't have. That, like, an NPC, like, a regular person, is only aware of one thread at a time, or, like, the thread up to the diverge and then down that one path. Okay. Which you see manifest in itself as as they get through more and more resets. Mm-hmm. They get less and less confident that they will survive those things. Right. Starting with Nadia's, I can't go down those stairs. Right. There's too big a chance that if I go down the stairs, I will die trying to go down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I'm going to take the fire escape. Mm-hmm. Odd choice, for sure. Um, but she doesn't ever die going down the fire escape. True. And so that reinforces that choice as a safe choice. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether she's rushing down the stairs or going down them very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, she gets like she goes very down very carefully, and someone like turns around and knocks her over with a banister, mm-hmm. nonetheless. But then you get to a point where her and Alan like we might actually die this time and not mm-hmm. come back, and like he's going around with his bicycle helmet on, and mm-hmm. she's going around with like a lacrosse stick and a helmet and chest pads and a cutting board duct taped to her chest, which I thought was hilarious. Somehow I missed that. Yeah, it's totally a cutting board, like from the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you use what you got. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, that awareness gets to a point where it is almost paralyzing, as mm-hmm. you said. Like, if, if you knew all the, all the options that could happen, mm-hmm. you'd just stand there and go, oh, God, I can't move. Right. And this is interesting because it's, and this might be somewhat of a tangent, but it's kind of related to to the psychological theory upon which I based my master's thesis, which is that it's been observed that most human beings have an attentional 
and an expectational bias toward the positive. And it's been theorized that this is an adaptation to cope with how intelligent we are and how capable we are of theorizing and observing negative outcomes. Like we can think of so many ways for things to go wrong. We can think of so many ways for for us to die. And we remember the bad things that we've observed or heard about. So to compensate for that, to avoid a paralysis of pessimism, basically, we selectively pay more attention to and expect the good things. So mm. the, um, well, that's, that was my, well, so well, my, let me back up. So the majority of human beings have a positive attention bias and the people who don't tend to be the people who experience depression and anxiety, which indicates that the positive attentional bias is a more functional bias, even though that bias is not realistic. People who are pessimistic or prone to anxiety tend to have a more realistic interpretation of the world and expectation of the world, and it's hard for them to to deal with that. So when I was doing my master's thesis, I was trying to figure out if there's a similar cycle between paying attention to more positive things or then remembering more positive things and thus then expecting more positive things in the same way that you see for negative loops with depression. So here you see a similar sort of situation where, except instead of paying attention to and expecting negative stuff, they are actively experiencing the negative stuff over and over and over again, and thus are very pessimistic of their chances of, say, going down the stairs without dying. And I think that that's really interesting as a framing for Nadia's progression, mm-hmm. um, because she refers to herself, like she recognizes her own death wish mm-hmm. um, when she's talking to Alan at the point at which they split, and mm-hmm. she's talking to the Alan that's suicidal mm-hmm. and telling him a bedtime story. She says mm-hmm. there was a broken man and a lady with a death wish, mm-hmm. um, but she's moved away from that by the end of the show mm-hmm. as she's sort of like found a slightly better understanding of things and some kind of, we'll get into all of that. But there are two points when she really recognizes this many worlds theory that you're mm-hmm. discussing. And there's one in a fairly early episode where her take on it is, what if everyone else keeps going in these other worlds? Right. And Ruth has had to deal with my death 15 times. Mm-hmm. And it drives her to not meet John's daughter because mm-hmm. what if she dies in front of her and she remembers that? Like, it might be meaningless to me and not have any effect on me if I die in this world, but what if everyone else is still living with that? Right, it's an awareness that the those timelines persist even if she, even if her existence and thus her awareness of those timelines doesn't. Or at least the possibility of it. There's a right. possible theory in mm-hmm. Nadia's head that maybe everything isn't about her. Mm-hmm. Um, right, exactly. But then in the final episode, um, when she's trying to get into Alan's place and the old man comes out and is like, you shouldn't smoke, my wife died from mm-hmm. cancer because she smoked all the time. Mm-hmm. Her response to him is, if it's any comfort, there's this many worlds theory. Somewhere out there, she's happy, she's alive and she's happy and mm-hmm. drinking tequila or margaritas or something. Mm-hmm. So like, it's a very, it's a much more pessimistic, much more positive take on mm-hmm. the idea. It's, it's not somewhere out there, everyone is suffering. It's somewhere out there, the person that suffered here is not suffering. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, I think that that holds up with your theory. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that it would take her longer to think of those worlds because she's not living in the worlds where she lived happily because those would all be different paths. She can't be aware of them all at the same time. Like our brains aren't 
set up to comprehend that. And I think that's why she and Ellen keep going back to the same point in time when they're in bathrooms alone. And that's the point of divergence of all of these timelines. And so they can only be aware of the ones that come off from that. Yeah. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. And of course, one interesting aspect of this is that all of these are simultaneous. So the order in which we see them is, it's arbitrary in the scheme of time, in that they're all simultaneous, but they're intentional in terms of the story to show the progression and like the way that their brains have sorted those timelines into a linear experience. They're simultaneous for Maxine and B and Mike. Right. But for them, they're given the opportunity to travel through the different options. Mm-hmm. So for them, they're not happening simultaneously because they for them they're having a linear experience. Because their brains are organizing them into a, into not just a linear experience but the same linear experience. Yeah. Which is interesting and I think goes back to that entanglement that we were talking about before. That doesn't really, I think, have a particularly satisfying explanation other than that they live in vaguely close proximity and have a couple of people in both of their lives. Like, they both have... They have both a positive and negative person in each of their lives that are the same. Yeah. Mike being a negative factor in both of their lives and Ferran being a positive factor in both of their lives. Yeah. Well, there's a... They have conversations about, like... Like, when they first meet, it's like, why is it the two of us? Uh What do we have in common? Well, we're both allergic to bees. Well, that's not actually a helpful thing, but... Except that it gives the universe an easy way to kill us both at the same time. Yeah. Um, And I'm sure I had a note on this. Which it had already successfully done with an elevator and a falling air conditioner. Ah, I have an answer to what the biggest fear is, uh, what the biggest thing they have in common is, which will will lead us into our next thing. Do you want to go into the next thing? Denial? It's not quite denial. That's a river in Egypt. Poor coping skills? Death wish? I think the response that they... They don't give it as a response, but you see both of them make the statement. Mm-hmm. Is that their biggest fear is people thinking that they're crazy. That's true, yeah. Like, in one episode, like, I think Maxine calls Nadia crazy, mm-hmm. and she's like, fuck you. Like, mm-hmm. it's suddenly, it's not a messing around fuck you, mm-hmm. it's a, no fuck off. Like, mm-hmm. you can't call me crazy. And someone's trying to persuade Alan to go to a therapy, mm-hmm. and... He's like, I don't want people to think I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. It's Ferran who's trying to... Yeah. yeah, Ferran tries to suggest that he go to therapy because it helped him and his wife or girlfriend or whatever when they were having problems. And you get that same sort of interesting dichotomy with them there where... Where, like, Nadia tries to get Ruth to have, like, a session in her actual therapist office and Ruth is like, you always prefer to talk in the kitchen. It's like Nadia is seeking therapy because she thinks she's going crazy and... Ruth is like, no, what you need is the familial connection and to feel safe and supported and loved. Yeah. Which Ruth is right. Like, it's like, why do you think that is that you always preferred the kitchen? Because it had all the things you were missing as a child in terms of hallmarks of security. Food that isn't watermelon. Yeah. Although I will say, watermelon, very tasty. I'm not a fan. Shall we go on to talk about cycles? Um, Is that going to talk about the decay and the fruit? Because I think that's also related to the time... No, it's not. You should talk about the decay of the fruit. Okay. Going back for a second to the many worlds thing and the perception of time, the decay of, like, the fruit and the flowers and things like that seems to be related to Nadia and... seems to be related to Nadia and Alan's experience of time and ordering it sequentially because the, the surfaces of things are existing multiple times like they are. That's why that stuff is going bad. But the inside of it isn't. 
which I think is in some way an indicator that this is all happening at the same time. Like at the core, it's all the same moment, but I'm not super confident in that assessment. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts too. It's an interesting choice and I'm wondering what you think it says. Do you think there's any relevance to the fact that all of those things are dead things? Because they're flowers that were already cut and fruit that's already been harvested. So they're no longer part of a living plant. It's interesting. Um, I mean, there is an extent to which I think that an answer is given in the show where Nadia cuts the fruit open and talks about it. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most interesting things about it, though, is that nobody else seems to react to it. Mm -hmm. Ruth doesn't seem like the kind of person that would have an entire bowl of fruit on her table go Mm moldy and not throw it out. Mm -hmm. And Ferran... Running a shop. (laughs) it's, It's not a good business model to have a table full of empty fruit, but they keep on going in their NPC model as if it's not happening. Right. I think it seems to speak to the difference in the perception of time of Nadia and Alan, whose awareness has been blown out beyond one thread of time and everyone else who's is still narrowed down to, you know, one path on the many worlds like Divergence. Yeah, I don't know what I have to say about it, but it is interesting that it rots rather than disappearing. Mm, yeah. I'm not quite sure what to make of it, but I just wanted to mention it. Did I write anything down? I don't know. No, I think I only have what Nadia says about it. Which is? Her using it as an explanation for the fact that time is linear. Mm-hmm. Well, time isn't linear, but our experience of it is. Right. The outside of the fruit and the flowers is keyed to their experience of time, while, time, while time. the inside of it isn't. Time is relative to experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, don't have much useful to say there. Okay. You were going to talk about cycles? Yeah, so I mean, talking about repetition and cycles is almost too obvious in the show, but I think part of it is that there's this foregrounding of the death and the reliving and going over and over through the same thing, Mm -hmm. and that being analogous to what their own experiences have been and what their own fears are. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's perhaps most obvious with Nadia, where you're going to have to correct me if I'm using this term wrong, where you have this sort of intergenerational trauma where her mother has this fear of insanity mm-hmm. but seems to have some mental health issues that Nadia has been traumatized by in her own way and while she doesn't while she's not necessarily the most stable of individuals doesn't seem to have the that same. diagnosable mental health issues but does have that strong fear of being thought to be crazy yeah much like alan and I think that that sort of, she she has the fear of being stuck in a cycle where she becomes her mother. Right. It's why that birthday is important, is she's got this far, she hasn't died, and she doesn't seem to be crazy. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, but she might be crazy mm-hmm. with this own cycle that comes through. Part of what intrigues me about this idea of the cycle, like of Nadia's becoming sort of unmoored from a singular experience of time being related to intergenerational trauma is that some of her mother's behaviors that were psychotic might have seemed to be potentially indicative of a similar experience Uh because she breaks all the mirrors, which seem to be a thing that the world has trouble populating. Um, They're certainly significant both in the future and in the flashbacks. Yeah. And then like the taking all the watermelon there's the weird thing with the fruit being rotten on the outside, but not on the inside. And presumably other people don't see it as rotten. So that could have been her latching on to something to try and figure it out. 
And there's her mother uses a phrase like, today's the day we get free. Yeah. As if she's been stuck in a cycle of some sort. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it she doesn't, like, die the day after Nadia is like, I want to go live with Ruth. She dies within the year. Mm-hmm. Which means, like, maybe she was reliving periods and went for longer and longer alive. Because Nadia and Alan talk about having gotten it being like the first time they've lived certain periods of time and things like that. Yeah. You know, last, like, like, I've never lasted this long, I think one of them says. Yeah. At the same time, though, I don't actually think that her mom is having the same recurring death experience, partly because there's no indication that there's any similar thing in Alan's past or background or anything, but. I think part of the problem that we have there is that we know so little about Alan. With a lot of his stuff. True. Um, Like, I mean, it's evident, like, the character that I assume is Alan's mother is never stated to be his mother to the point that you're not sure it is. We don't know anything about his father. We know, like, Nadia is a very fleshed out character and Alan is not so much. He's sort of defined through a few of the events in his stuff. But a lot of it is Alan has a relationship with Beatrice and some mental health issues. And that's largely what we know about him. So there could be stuff in his history that hasn't come up, or there could be stuff in his history that he doesn't know about. Hmm. So I think it's I think it could very much go either way. In terms of cycles, there's the obvious one of like them continuing to die and reset in the same place and just, you know, coming back to the same bathrooms. Which reminds me of, you know, certain ideas of reincarnation where that sort of map that sort of relate well to Alan's idea of like this being a chance to do it better. There are some ideas of reincarnation where the point of living successive lives is to improve your soul through more experience and more opportunity to lead a better life, which is very much what Alan tries to do, except it's the same life, not, you know, several different ones. Yeah. So with the cycles, there's there's also the stuff about with horse, mm-hmm. when horse cuts her hair, mm-hmm. her response to it is that she looks like her mum. Mm-hmm. And then in the episode where you meet her mother in the flashback, her mother refers to Nadia's hair as her crowning glory, mm-hmm. which is a little bit weird anyway. Well, it's a, it's a striking and lovely feature. Yeah. I understand why her mom says that. Yeah. Okay. So there's that, there's very much that cycle there. And then again, as I say, you get less characterization of Alan and less of his history. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's barely in the first three episodes, apart from a couple of glimpses of him. But he's clearly, he's set himself into this cycle once he's there of, okay, I will just go and do these things over and over again. Mm -hmm. Like, if you know over and over again that you're going to go to your girlfriend's place and she's going to dump you, Mm -hmm. then I feel by iteration three, Mm -hmm. either you don't go or you go and tell her to go fuck herself. (laughs) I think there's a strong element of self-flagellation in that. Right. He's, because he does think he's being punished, like he says that to Nadia, like that's his strongest and earliest conclusion and so i don't even think he considers doing something different a real option until again nadia is there to throw a wrench into things and you know show him that you can just do it completely differently not do the same thing optimized in the way he's trying to do to i guess like take the perfect punishment and get out of this loop that is his punishment or whatever yeah well, you see some interesting breaks for him, like where it's clear that he does feel sort of trapped in this and that it's his punishment that he's been given. Mm-hmm. Um, like once he's thrown the ring and he then finds it's gone, like he gets this sort of moment of euphoria that it's mm-hmm. it's gone. He's no longer trapped into this mm-hmm. eternal attempting to propose because he doesn't even have the ring anymore. Mm-hmm. 
And at that same time, like, he's throwing his stuff around, which is very much not part of his OCD nature. Mm -hmm. And he's also wearing a bright yellow shirt, Mm -hmm. which is a shirt he's never been wearing in any of the scenes before. Mm -hmm. Um, So you get that complete break there. Yeah. Which I think sort of reinforces how much of a cycle it was. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, no, I can wear a different shirt, damn it. Right. I'll wear a bold colour. But you also get the impression that he's been in this cycle with Beatrice for forever that just keeps on going. And presumably there have been times where Beatrice has sort of tried to break up with him in the past. Mm -hmm. um, And it's just kept going on and on for Mm -hmm. nine years. Yeah, I ended up, upon further reflection, watching this the second time, having a lot more sympathy with Beatrice than I did watching through the first time. Because when I was like... 14 or 15, I think 15, I was in a relationship with someone who had very unstable mental health and who I was concerned might hurt or kill themselves if I seemed unhappy in any way. And you end up feeling horribly, horribly trapped in that kind of situation. And like, there's just no way out without hurting somebody that you care about. And so I suspect that you're correct in that, you know, she tried to figure out ways to kind of disentangle herself from Alan or improve the situation or get him to work on some of his instability, but he was so resistant. And eventually she seems to have gotten to the point where she needed to find a way for them to break up where he would blame her and not him. And most of the people that I have known personally who have cheated on their partner shortly before breaking up with them, a lot of the time that has been a conscious or subconscious attempt to get the other person to break up with them because they weren't happy and they, they didn't have the ability to articulate why they wanted to no longer be in that relationship and were just so afraid of hurting that person's feelings that they wanted to give the other person sort of a, a reason to just be mad instead of feeling like it was their fault or something. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not definitely not endorsing that as a strategy for breaking up with people. It's horribly hurtful. You cannot control how another person is going to take that. It will not necessarily remove the possibility of your partner thinking it was because they weren't enough or some bullshit like that. It's definitely not a healthy way to end your relationship. But most of the people I've known who also did that, they were kind of young when they did that. But still, like, I do feel a little bit bad for Beatrice. Like, it was shitty what she did, cheating on her boyfriend for a long period of time with someone else. It's shitty. But considering Alan's instability, I also understand why she didn't feel like she could break up with him. Yes. But on the flip side, Alan talks about how, like, he also knew for a long time there were lots of repeated interactions they had, which were, like, kind of cycles of their own, that were indicators for him that things weren't great and that he ignored. Yeah, or I refuse to see. Right. So when it comes to, like, I mean, I think that it's, there are many cycles going on. I think it's just if we looked at it as there's the cycle of the deaths, Mm -hmm. which is kind of emblematic of the cycle of trauma and mental health or the fear thereof for Mm -hmm. Nadia. And like the guilt that she feels that she was the one that caused her mother's death in some way. And then Alan's issues with Beatrice and that cycle there. When it comes to what the show has to say about breaking out of a cycle, Mm -hmm. it's interesting because both of them see that they're in this cycle where they keep dying Mm -hmm. and have very different responses. As you've mentioned, like, Alan feels he's being punished and thinks that the way to get through it is to, well, I'll just do everything right. Mm -hmm. If I I do the right thing, Mm -hmm. then everything will be fixed. Whereas... Nadia avoids the possibility that it could have anything to do with her at all. Mm -hmm. That there must be something wrong. Her first thought is, oh, it must be the drugs. So it's Maxine's fault she gave me the drugs. It's the person who made the drugs. Let's go and research all of that. And guess the point, okay, it's not the drugs. 
well, it's an old Jewish building, it must be haunted. Mm-hmm. And then there's that very telling line that is not said to her, it's said to John of, um, like, buildings aren't haunted, people are. Mm-hmm. Which, one of the most important lines in the show is almost thrown away. And it's the rabbi who says that to John, right? Yeah. And that really shows up very literally when Nadia is then haunted by the specter of her childhood self. Yes. At the point that she decided to live with Ruth or was placed with Ruth, really, because it it sounds like she blames herself for being placed with Ruth because she assumes that she must have given some indication of wanting to live with Ruth instead. She says that she said she wanted to live with Ruth and Ruth is like, no, you said you wanted to live with your mom like your mom told you, but no one was going to let that happen. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of how, you know, we color our own memories and our own experience with our feelings and our constructed memories of what happened and our assumptions about what must have happened. So Nadia went to live with Ruth and she assumed that even if she never said the words, she must have made some indication that told other people that she wasn't safe in her mom's care. And that thus it's her fault that her mom died. And Ruth is like, no, sweetie, you were a kid. Yeah. And you you were a child and you wanted to live and that's all that that is and that's a, that's a good thing. It's good that you wanted to be safe and okay. Yeah. And then there's that conversation about like do do you still mm-hmm. have that drive to want to live and she doesn't answer which isn't it something. Well, and she just starts crying cuz she yeah. knows that that's kind of the crux of it is that she doesn't know. And that's yeah. very scary. It's very scary to not know if you want to live or not. Yeah. Once both of them are on board with, like, having an understanding of what's going on and wanting to fix it, they talk about a bit about what they have in common that might be causing it on both ends. But then when they start seeing things in their lives that might be the problem, they both go off and try and fix their own thing mm-hmm. without much success. Alan goes and attacks Mike, mm-hmm. which is not the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. Nadia, she tries to reconnect with John and then is concerned about what that's going to do to John's kid. Mm-hmm. Well, I think she concludes that it was her aversion and avoidance of like connection that yeah. is the problem. She's like, oh, I've been sabotaging every relationship I've ever had. I threw away this thing that I had with John and like decides that that's what she has to make right. Yeah. But they both sort of try and talk about it and then go and do their own thing and it does not fix the cycle. And then I think when you start to see the um, cycle getting broken, it's kind of in the spirit of something that Ferran has said much earlier, which is no one can do anything by themselves. Which, like, clearly they've not been on the same page as that from before. Um, Alan, when he's learned about Mike, looks at the beta fish mm-hmm. and says, oh, if there's two, then one kills the other. Mm-hmm. And he goes and looks at Mike and there's sort of this idea that he's thinking about Mike and him. Then, like, w- one of us has to kill the other one. That's just how things work because that's what fish do. Mm-hmm. Um, Solid reasoning there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think you should make all your life decisions by saying, hmm, what would fish do? We should get that on a little band around my wrist. No? Okay. It sort of seems like some faulty reasoning that might be applied to other things and why they're not working together. Mm. Like, two, two together need to work it out together. Mm. Um, With the one of them kills the other thing, that could be applied to Alan and Nadia, because, you know, when one of them dies, the other one also dies, because they always have to die at the same time, like you were talking about before. Yeah. So there's also that there. They need to work it out together rather than killing one another. Yeah. So in episode seven, they sort of get to that and work out that they've needed to work these things through. And you've got Nadia, who has gone from, I don't need anyone else. Uh, Like, I'll get married when I'm 60 or something and need someone Mm -hmm. to take care of me or something like that. Mm -hmm. Who's, like, in a position where she's saying to Alan, stay with me, don't 
leave me here. And him saying, you're the most selfish person I've ever met. Thank you for changing my life. Lives are hard to change. It's interesting that he says she's the most selfish person he's ever met. He later realizes how selfish he's been. Yeah. But really, they're both incredibly selfish people. As you said, they're both very self-involved. She's just explicitly self-involved, and he is more subtly self-involved. All of his life is based around routines meant to soothe his own anxieties and his own behavioral problems with little to no concern or awareness Mm. of how his regimented ways of being and his refusal to entertain any sort of disruption to his plan or his uh, structured, you know, narrative that he set up for himself is going to affect anyone else like Beatrice, the person he's presumably trying to build a life with. Like, he's not actually bringing her in on any of that. They don't live together after nine years. Yeah. You know, he still, he has his own apartment that's very special sparse and very ordered where he listens to these affirmations all the time. And those affirmations are very much... About him. Yes. They're about how he's beautiful and he deserves love and all of this stuff. And there's not a whole lot of room in there. Like, we don't see that his existence is particularly conjoined with hers. Yeah. You know, he's could maintain this very separate existence despite being in a nine-year relationship which is just not reflective of pretty much any relationship i've observed i mean i'm sure there are some people who do live very independent lives like that but it doesn't seem clearly beatrice isn't happy in their relationship and he later acknowledges that he knew that on some level yeah so it's not that she she's not the most selfish person he knows they're both really selfish people he just wasn't ready to quite acknowledge how selfish he was at that point yeah Which is interesting with the mirrors. Mm. Like, the fact that the point that they keep going back to is that staring at a mirror of themselves. Yeah. And then, like, around the time that they are starting to get the idea of maybe I need to think about other people mm-hmm. is where, is around the same time those mirrors disappear and have disappeared everywhere. That makes a lot of sense, especially because when Alan breaks the mirror in Mike's office, he then immediately asks someone else to tell him how he looks and comments on the fact that without the mirror there, he can't tell. And it links back to what Ruth has said about, you know, speculating as to why Nadia's mom once went on a rampage breaking mirrors. It was saying that it may have had to do with proof of existence and someone else observing you, yeah. basically. That you need an observer to verify that you're there, that you're really there, something to reflect you so that you know you're real. Yeah. So that's interesting that that is at the same time that they're starting to look outside of themselves for meaning and connection in the world. Yeah. Um, and like when they come back and all the people are back, first thing that Nadia does when she goes out of the bathroom, which now has a mirror in, is hug and kiss and say hi to everyone that she can. Yeah. And appreciates that they're there. And mm-hmm. to some extent that's, oh, thank God you're back. The world mm-hmm. isn't falling apart. I'm not about to die. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it is that recognition of other people. And not just other people, but other people who love her and are there for her. Like, that these are other people who have made time in their lives to celebrate that she is alive. So I think that's an important aspect of it too. I don't think that's necessarily what she is thinking about, but I think she is just grateful that they have, they're no longer disappeared as they were in previous iterations. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there is something to the fact that she is literally expressing appreciation for the existence of people in her life who care about her. Yeah. I, uh, I make a face only because I wonder how many people at that party, like, know and care for Nadia and how many people got an invitation to a party where there's, like, lots of drugs and a sex pile. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're yeah. like, sure, mm-hmm. Nadia. Yeah, I've 
I've been in the same room as Nadia. <laughs> I don't know. I think that most of them do seem to like know her and are friends yeah. with her because there's that point where she's like, I want you to all tell me what a shitty person I am. And a lot of people have stories that they can provide in that vein of, oh, yeah, I have a story about how you're sometimes a selfish bitch. Like, do they? A few people like raise their hands, I think, and stuff. I might be misremembering. No, I think no one says anything and she takes it as a sign to, mm-hmm. like, she uses it as proof to Alan that she's not a terrible person and therefore they can't be, she can't be being punished. I think everyone's like, this is a trap. <laughs> yes. So her sort of realization of all of this seems to have created, like, her change in herself has created a change in the world. Like, when she goes to Ruth's house in the final episode mm-hmm. and the gas doesn't blow up. Yeah. A, it's a surprise to her. Yeah. But B, like, there's no reason why there's now not a gas leak. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no evidence that Ruth has just got her gas fixed. Mm-hmm. Like, it's as if previously that's been a convenient way to kill her and now she's mm-hmm. not got to go through that. And the thing that's happened before that... Before that? Is that in the final episode or when everything's back or is that in episode seven? Yeah, sorry. I think I misspoke. I think that's in episode seven when everything's still terrible. But both her and Alan like end that episode by going and confronting the issue and acknowledging that they're the issue. Mm-hmm. Alan very much sort of on the nose sitting down talking with Beatrice and saying like, hey, we need to talk. Mm-hmm. And like, I know about this and it's fine. Like, I know that I'm, I'm not blameless in this situation. Mm-hmm. And then Mike turns up and they have a completely odd but fine interaction and he leaves and mm-hmm. then dies um because it's convenient for him to i don't know well he starts dying and leaves because yeah. he gets the nosebleed and is that when nadia is dying um she she's walking up to it mm-hmm. um nadia is giving john's kid the book right and talking about that stuff and challenging her own past mm-hmm. and that process comes out as the as his kid turns into an image of her mm-hmm. as a child and says, I'm still inside of you mm-hmm. as she's coughing up blood. Mm-hmm. And she pulls out the shard of mirror, mm-hmm. which is wildly disturbing. Mm-hmm. And you get the phrases, are you ready to let her die? Mm-hmm. Presumably, are you willing to let go of her mother? I wonder if that's her mom or if that's the version of herself that she mm. was. I think it's more the version of herself the little girl, because she talks about when she's telling Alan what she's seeing. She says that it's herself from when she was a girl and um, saying that that girl is from a time when things weren't great with my mom. Yeah. And she's been holding on to this version of herself as a child who betrayed her parent. Like, that's the... Yeah. That's what she's kind of overlaid on that identity, is that this is a traitor and someone who is faithless and, you know, undeserving of love and things like that. So yeah. it's it's rough. And, like, angry, probably, but also unwilling to direct that anger in any way appropriate place but well it's also interesting because we get this loop back to the phrase this is the day we get free mm-hmm. comes up in that scene again i mentioned before that with like that shadow mirror i wanted to come back to it um yep. we don't know how nadia's mother dies i thought we were going to get that scene in the flashbacks the first time i saw it when her mother has like broken all the mirrors mm-hmm I think that there might be a vague implication that she might have killed herself by eating glass. Yeah. Right. And, like, that would make sense with the coughing up of the mirror shard later. Yeah. So. In which case, the she's still inside you could be referring to her mother. Like, it's this baggage that you're still carrying around that's hurting you from the inside. Become literal. 
Right. Uh, it's the more literal sense than the Krugeran that she carries, mm-hmm. which for people who haven't seen the show is like a symbol of the money that was given away, the, the, like the co- her college fund that was spent by her mother. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it could be let her die, the version of yourself that was weighed down by your mother, mm-hmm. or let her die as in stop letting her have a hold on you. Yeah. Either way, it's whether it's talking about her old self or her mother, it's to stop being weighed down by and controlled by fear of the past, basically. Because yeah. she's making all of these decisions in an effort to avoid repeating that cycle of having a family and then not doing right by them, I, I guess. Because that, I think that's fairly clear from the way that she explicitly avoids forming any sort of permanent attachments. She has a cat and she doesn't even like keep the cat in her house or anything. Like it's a neighborhood alley cat that she loves and will take care of when he is around, but who is not reliant on her. And like, she seems to be, you know, doing everything she can to keep anyone from ever trying to rely on her in any way. Because when she relied on her mom and her mom couldn't handle that responsibility and the like don't touch any of my stuff like Mm -hmm. people who are in her apartment are there to for a single purpose Mm -hmm. and then should go yeah like literally calls him calls mike an uber to get Mm -hmm. him out of her apartment yep and is very mad at alan when he like tidies things up and puts out pictures of her mom that he found under the bed which to be fair that was a stupid thing to do like he really ought to have known better but yeah but he's self-involved. And right. He, no, if this was my apartment, it would mm-hmm. be tidy and it mm-hmm. would look like this. And these photos would be on the wall. Yeah. And therefore, that is what, all that matters because what I think is all that matters. It's, yeah. They're both self-involved and what they need to get out of the cycles that they're stuck in is the help of others. And self-awareness. And an outside perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, just a, just a note in as far as uh, Alan not knowing what's going on outside of himself. He's been with Beatrice for nine years, but doesn't know what his, her thesis topic is. Wow. He, he suggests like, oh yeah, you're writing about this author. And she's like, no, it's this one. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which ones it is. I think one of them's Updike. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he says Nadia is self-involved or um, selfish. selfish. Yeah. Like that, that's not a good sign for a relationship. And also he like, he clearly has no particular connections outside of Beatrice. Like, the only people that he seems to know to go and talk to is Faran. Mm -hmm. Like, he even tries to tell the guy that he holds the door open for, like, his elderly neighbor. And tries to tell him about the fact that Nadia was in the elevator and things. And the guy's like, "Uh uh-huh, that's nice. Gonna go inside now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Want to talk about some storytelling elements? In terms of storytelling strategies... I think that having it set in New York and just showing the specific settings that they do is very interesting because it is a particular place that has this reputation for being full of people who just sort of go about their business and like don't really connect with each other and don't really care and like just don't give a fuck. And so that makes sense because we have these two very self-involved characters who are very self-involved in different ways in terms of what that looks like, what they do. But it also gives you the opportunity to show a lot of very modern areas in terms of aesthetic and also a lot of very historical, at least for the United States, um, (laughs) you know, areas like the Yeshiva Jewish school that Maxine is hosting the party at where um, Nadia keeps resetting as opposed to the very like modern clean lines, blue lights apartment that Alan's in. And then you have Central Park, which has this sort of mix of urban grunge and wooded like paths and stuff. Yeah. It's like a little micro, like a little sandbox game all by itself. 
Yeah, the locations gap for that show was great. Um, everywhere that they go feels like a very distinct place. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Which is important because you need to be able to tell the places apart. But also in terms of just like the visual storytelling, you can kind of see like the different the different aesthetics that you see as like Nadia's home environment, which is the party, and Alan's home environment are very clearly reflections of who they are as people and the unhealthy coping skills that they have engaged in, where Alan has gone with these very orderly, structured you know, expert-informed type of coping skills that are very inflexible. And then Nadia is engaging in, like, the time-honored, people have been doing this for for as long as there are people, coping skills of doing lots of drugs and having lots of sex. Like, yeah. <laughs> and she's in this, like, more archaic building and things like that. Yeah. I think that ties in with um, a lot of the color choices. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, certainly, like, Alan is often represented with a lot of blue. Yep. And Nettie is represented with a lot of red. When she has the chance to change out of her party outfit to mm-hmm. do other things the next day, she's usually wearing a very red shirt. You pointed out even, like, the title sequences for the episodes change color throughout, mm-hmm. going from red for a lot of the Nadia ones, and then when Alan gets introduced, it's blue, mm-hmm. and then it sort of gets to a sort of more in-between color. It ends up, like, pink for a bit, and then eventually, like, it is black at the end. Yeah. Um, I also think it's interesting that, like, Nadia is represented by red, because she, and I think that makes sense, because she's a very chaotic person, and Alan's represented by blue, and he's, like, this very, like, kind of he's taking this very kind of cold approach to things. But I think that they're both using a lot of those orientations in terms of their actions as a way of damping down or deflecting away from like core parts of themselves that they don't want to acknowledge or are sort of running away from. Like Nadia, I think, has a hard time connecting genuinely to people and it seems may feel somewhat numb and cold in a lot of ways, like emotionally. And is compensating for that with all of these, like, short-term bursts of, like, fiery activity, like, partying and having lots of promiscuous sex and things. And then Alan, we see that he has some issues with managing his anger and being self-destructive and, like, throwing things in, like, the few moments where he kind of loses it, like, when he dies in the game. And he's trying to compensate for that by doing all these more you know, restrictive things that are more calm. Well, it's interesting because even with the colour, like, there is some element within that looks sort of out of place. So in Alan's apartment, there are some blocks of red on the back wall Mm -hmm. that you see at one point. And they're, Um, like, in the middle. It's like the core of him is actually very upset. And then Nadia is in this very warm-toned party. Mm -hmm. A lot of her stuff is darker colours. But then there's the door into the bathroom has got that great big blue thing yeah, on like it. Yeah, galaxy portal vagina thing. Yes, that thing. I seem to remember the first time I watched it, you immediately were like, it's a save point! Yes, it looks like a save point. Yeah. And I think tying into like a lot of the sort of like visual choices, there's a lot of the story is just told through things that are going on in the background. Mm-hmm. Like, if you watch the whole season, it tells you a lot of it in the final couple of episodes. Um, but there's a lot of things that you can pick up on earlier just by watching what's going on in the background, whether it's making sure that you're paying attention to what Mike's doing on the phone and things like mm-hmm. that, or even like Alan's presence in the earlier episodes. At the very end of episode three, we get introduced to Alan. Um, but in episode one, he's in the deli and is kind of brushed away. I think in the second episode or earlier in the third episode, Nettie is walking through the park and Alan walks by in a scene that we do see later from the other side. Mm. But we don't know that it's important at that point. 
the story isn't necessarily told in an entirely linear way because there is just that stuff that you can see going on in the background, especially a second watch. Mm-hmm. You go, oh, that's important. I hadn't been paying attention for that because we're taught to be listening to the main characters that are talking. It's all about what the eyes aren't looking at in this. Yeah, it's like before when I was saying, I bet if you watch Nadia enter the party multiple times, even though you don't notice it for a while, there's probably fewer people each time. Yeah. And I think the last sort of weird storytelling element that I wanted to touch on with this one was um, just the way the deaths are used. They work as sort of convenient chapter breaks. Um, It must have been an interesting experiment to write it, just from like, there are times when she dies because... She's sort of done with that, and times when they've put a death in so that she can't finish that line of reasoning. They also use a few of the deaths, I think, to highlight some social problems. Hmm. Like, the fact that she freezes to death with horse, and she comes back from that, she's like, wow, that was dark. Um, It's like, yeah, there are homeless people dying on the streets every winter, because, and even though we have enough housing for everyone... There are all these economic barriers in the way. And then Ruth's gas leak also. Like, Ruth is an older woman who doesn't think it's an issue and isn't getting the gas leak fixed. And every time, like, Nadia tries to go and get, like, the gas company out or whatever to fix it, you know, it's like, these are problems that come up when you have older relatives that you're keeping an eye out for and stuff like that. She shoots Nadia because there's a, somebody, you know, there have been some burglaries in the neighborhood or something, and so she keeps asking Nadia to lock the door when she comes in, even though Nadia already locked the door, and eventually that results in one of the times for mistaking Nadia for an intruder and shooting her. It's like, you know, crime and paranoia and things like that, and the risk of shooting a loved one if you have a gun in the house and you're scared. Trying to think of what other deaths happen. I think that they're used really well to highlight the issue of like paranormal representations of your younger self as mm-hmm. a hazard in society, which I think um, we're really not and, talking about. Like, and like, chicken wings, they're a menace. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. That, well, that's obviously a commentary on uh, the gorging nature of the American dream. And mm-hmm. yeah, also, obesity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're just being silly at this point. Interesting she never overdoses. Like, I expect her to... Like, I know, like, both the second time and the first time we watched, there's one of her iterations, one of Nadia's iterations, where she just stays at the party and drinks a lot and does all the drugs. Yeah. And she doesn't die. And, like, I expected her... I expected her to. I expected that to be the time that she got alcohol poisoning or overdosed on something or whatever. Well, she's a cockroach. Right. She has that gene that means that you can just do all of that stuff, I guess. Apparently. But I just thought that was interesting that that was not one of her deaths. Yeah. Which I do think coordinates well with that being an expression of her death wish. Like, it's something she... It's something self-destructive she's doing, but it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I don't want to go into it in huge detail because I don't think we have really the resources to discuss it properly right now. But the music choices in the show, I think, are really interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the song that plays when she keeps dying and re- re- rebirthing. That's not the word I wanted to use. Respawn- respawning. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a song that keeps playing when she- when she respawns. And then there's the um, classical music that Alan's listening to, or like that plays over Alan's coming back. And then in that last episode when they both come back but they're in different timelines like the music is playing together over each other to make sort of cacophony which is interesting but just some of the other stuff in like vaguely political ones um Mm. there's a song that plays when she's going into the homeless shelter to visit horse um and there's a song at the end of one of them that's in russian Mm -hmm. and if you read the subtitles for what it's about it's effectively like fuck the government that's not 
doing what it should be with our tax dollars. Mm-hmm. So there's just some sort of interesting social commentary that just goes on through the particular music choices. Yeah, I, I definitely think they do use the music for that kind of social commentary. And they also, I think, use particularly that playing of both together in Cacophony in that very last one. I think it foreshadows that these are different universes that are, you know, these are different timelines. They're not both aware of all the timelines in each one. Nadia's aware of all the timelines in one, and Alan's aware of them all in the other. Yeah. For the first time in however many deaths. I work in a bookstore, which means that I am too good at spotting what a book is by just the vague presence of it on a counter. And when we were watching the last episode of this again, we noticed that Fran is reading, or has been reading, a copy of The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I looked it up on Wikipedia, have not read it, but it does seem like the main ideas of that book tie directly into a lot of the messages in the series of Russian Dolls, so, you know, other people can feel free to, you know, look more into that, but essentially it's... We'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, but essentially it breaks down a code of conduct based on ancient Toltec wisdom advocating freedom from self-limiting beliefs that may cause suffering and limitation in a person's life. Um, The whole idea being that if you take on and internalize these four agreements and, like, live according to them, you can avoid a life of regret. Mm. Um, The four agreements being to be impeccable with your word, to not take anything personally, which is more in terms of, like, having a strong sense of self, not relying on other people's opinions to maintain your own self-image. Not making assumptions, because that can lead to misunderstandings, sadness, drama, and just a lot of stress and interpersonal conflict, basically. Because when you have an assumption, you're thinking that that's a true reflection of the world, and it functionally isn't, so. And then agreement for always do your best. Yeah, and that's the main one for, like, avoiding regret. Like, if you know you did your best, you don't have to feel bad about anything, basically. If you can do the best you can and incorporate those other agreements, then you should be able to live a life free from sorrow and self-ridicule. This is all from, like, the Wikipedia entry on this book. There was a line when you were reading last night about the ability to, like, your suffering is within your control sort of thing, and you can change it. I think that was the key part that we needed to read. Well, the always do your best part, according to Don Miguel Ruiz, everything that people do is based on agreements you've made with yourself, others, God, and life itself. And that through those agreements, you're telling yourself who you are, how you should behave, what's possible in the world, and what's impossible. And some agreements that people create might not cause problems, but others that come from a place of fear have the power to deplete your emotional energy and diminish your sense of self-worth. And so um, Ruiz is setting forth an argument that you can avoid self-judgment and do your best in every given moment to avoid regret and all of that. So, and live to your full potential, basically. Yeah. Which, again, ties into a whole lot of the things that we see with Nadia and Alan struggling with other people's opinions of themselves, you know, acting from assumptions based on fear, all of that. Yeah, and it's interesting that Ferran's the one reading that book when he is sort of a force for good within the show. like And in both of their lives. Yeah, he's sort of supportive of Nadia and the you know oatmeal and things, and protective of her to an extent. But also with Alan, like he's the one giving good advice, like, you should probably talk to someone. Mm-hmm. And like taking care of him when he's, you know, really upset and getting drunk and even shuts Nadia out to be like, no, this is like, me and Alan are very close. Mm-hmm. 
I need to take care of him. Like, he is a caring figure. Until his girlfriend calls him, and then he wanders off and doesn't notice his friend leave. But uh, anyway. Well, we don't know. Well, yeah, because presumably you'd go to your friend's apartment if you couldn't find them after. Yeah, that. that's that's a little bit questionable. But aside from that, um, he's presented as being this very much, like... He's a nurturing force in both of their lives. He's one of, I think, two characters in the entire show that are... Um, not vaguely terrible people at some point. Him and Ruth? I guess Ruth too. I, I was talking about Watermelon Deli guy, but... Mm. Really what I'm saying is that the people who work in delis in New York are clearly the best people in the world. <laughs> I think Ruth is a good person. Yeah. Like, her life is... Her life's work is helping people get yes. past their issues and being happy. So. Yeah. And I guess to an extent, Ruth is Nadia's Faram. To a degree. No, I think Ferran is just friends with both of them. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, I think that Ferran is sort of Alan's ear to have a third party, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, after the thing with Beatrice, he talks to Ferran. Yeah. And, you know, the stuff that she's dealing with, she talks to Ruth. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. There are the people in their lives who are like, you know, therapy is a useful thing. Yeah. Everyone should have one of those people in their lives. Have you, have you thought about thinking critically about some of the experiences you've had and some of the choices that you make, maybe with another person there to help you unravel some of that stuff. No? Are you sure? <laughs> okay, so just in case this last section of the podcast sounds different, it's because we once again had our recording session split over two days. We'll hopefully not have to keep doing that soon, but for now this is what we got. Also, if Mark sounds a little slurred from here out, it is because they're recovering from a dental visit, so... Mm. Just, don't be concerned. Just half my face is all swollen and numb. It's great. Cool. Okay, so I think we've covered all the main topics we want to talk about. I think the big question that's left at the end of this season is how and why did they get out? And also, are they out as such? I think we should start with are they out? Because I think that's pretty ambiguous. Okay. You could argue that a version of both Alan and Nadia is not out because there's a version of each of them that's still aware of all of the deaths and all of those loops. So it's not a complete restoration of like a normal understanding of existence or like a conventional understanding of existence and a single timeline's awareness at a time because there's a version of each of them that remembers all of the loops. But from a, like, if we took this as a complete narrative, which obviously there's going to be a season two, we're aware of that, so it's not as such. But if we were to take it as a complete narrative, they seem to be out of the loop. They have the history of having been in the loop, but if someone locks me in a cage and I get out of the cage, I remember that I was in the cage. Mm-hmm. That's true. So they might be. And I think that's one of the ways that you could argue that they're out because now they're able to have an existence where they're not dying. But honestly, do we even know that? Because there's not that much of a period of time between them entering a reality where the other is unaware of the repeated timelines or aware, yeah. unaware of the different timelines. They're still within a period of time in which in which they died in, during the loops. Yeah, it's not like you're shown them, you know, having lived their lives like five years down the line, not having right. died unexpectedly I mean, and reset constantly. I mean, one thing I wonder about is whether with season two, you might have some of those characters dying and returning to that weird tunnel scene that they set up at the end of season one, hmm. where they're sort of, it's a crossover point. Yeah, maybe. 
Yeah, I think that it's probably deliberately ambiguous as to whether or not they're actually out per se, because, you know, the version of Alan that's drunk in the bodega and narrowly averted from suicide by Nadia is theoretically still gonna die. If not, though, then I think it's because each of their original deaths was thwarted. So it's like you undid the snarl. Like, there was a knot in the thread and you had to, like, undo it until you got back to where the original mistake happened. Yeah, and, like, they do theorize at the start that, like, the original death is what's important. Yes. And there's the whole thing about finding out how Alan originally died Mm -hmm. so that they could try and stop it. Mm-hmm. But of course, as both at being active agents in those, then I mean, they just have to not go there to stop it. So. Right. And I think that if they are out, and if that's why, then I think the missing part was them not dying in the first place, not them not dying after they'd already had an awareness of having died in that first way, if that makes sense. It doesn't. Okay, so it had to be a clean slate. Alan can't not kill himself because he knows he killed himself. Yeah. Alan has to not kill himself because he never makes that choice. Well, he makes... You know what I mean? Yeah. Because he does it. He considers it, but he doesn't actually commit to the choice. Nadia is able to persuade him not to. Nadia is not reckless with her... Well, she is reckless with her life in the same way, but she is with somebody who will help her, which is the thing that she's been avoiding all her whole life, is having backup in her life, having a support system in her life to help her when she is being self-destructive. Yeah. And she needed that at a point where her motivations were pure, basically. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think it makes more sense. It's a little easier to see it with Alan, where it's an, I think it needed to be an uncontaminated prevention of the death, not a prevention of the death that's influenced by awareness of the experience of the death. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I see where you're going with that. And I think that that's, that's interesting with going back to the like how and why they get that thing. Because they break out of the loop by being in that position to be the person the other person needs in mm-hmm. the moment to say, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. Stop being the thing that you're being, mm-hmm. um, whatever that might be for each of them. But the majority of the show is dedicated to them getting to the point to be able to be that person for someone. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that throughout the course of the show, Nadia learns that she needs to be less self-destructive and needs to think of other people and... Needs to, I think more importantly, needs to let people into her life. Yeah. Needs to form genuine connections that she is comfortable admitting that she cares about because I think that's a big part of it. Because, like, she and Maxine are really good friends, but there seems to be an acknowledged level of, like, superficiality to those friendships. Yeah. And... That seems to be the only condition under which Nadia will allow a long-term connection aside from with Ruth. Everything else, she kind of freaks out and burns because she can't handle it's too intimidating. Like, it's too much pressure to yeah. have that kind of connection, so. And additionally with her, like, a lot of it is about her letting go of the stuff with her mother. Right. But, like, once she's done that stuff, she needs to not just do that, but then be able to transfer that to Alan mm-hmm. in a way that he can be the person to help her. Right. Rather, like, it's not a... You must learn your by yourself and then heal yourself. It's mm-hmm. the with the help of others thing. Yeah. Because not only is Alan there to be like, hey, don't be self-destructive with Mike, mm-hmm. but also like the way that he gets her attention is by knowing stuff about her mother that she has not let other people know because it's right a thing that she tries to keep walled off to herself. 
because those are th- those things that he knows are evidence that she was vulnerable with him, yeah. which is not something she allows herself to do, which does go back, of course, to her feelings of guilt and that she betrayed her mom, because I think it really all comes down to the fact that the other than Ruth, the last person that she was vulnerable with, and even with Ruth, she was vulnerable with Ruth and connected to Ruth and she feels like that connection killed her mom and also the other major relationship in her life where she was vulnerable and connected in that way was with her mom and that's how that ended. So it makes sense that she would have to some extent internalized the idea that deep sentimental connections with other people, you know, that you try to build build into your life are ultimately going to end in pain for yourself and them. Yeah. The whole thing is she didn't want to meet John's daughter and commit to a actual life with him after his marriage fell apart because she's convinced that she'll hurt him and he'll hurt her. And you get the microcosm version of that when she decides not to meet his daughter in the show. And right. it's the, oh, what if I go in there and meet her and I and die, die yeah. and then... She'll be scarred for life. And, yeah. yeah. It's exactly. the, if I let people in, I'm letting people in to hurt me. And well, not even just that, but if I let people in and I, if I become close to people, something about me will hurt them. My selfishness will hurt them or, you know, something. So yeah, I think it definitely, it all comes down for her to that, you know, learning that she can and should form actual lasting emotional bonds with people. And I think with Alan, it's that he needs to recognize his own culpability in things that go wrong in his life and his relationships and that that he needs to be held accountable too for the stuff that he does. Which I maintain that I think that in that end situation, Nadia has the easier job. Oh, yeah. And then it's easier to get somebody to not kill themselves than it is to get them to not have reckless sex with someone they want to sleep with. Well, I'm not sure. Like, I don't think I want to cast it as easy to get someone to not kill themselves. She has the one-on-one... Mm-hmm situation with Alan where she's aware of all the issues and exactly how that goes out mm-hmm. whereas Alan has this situation where there's very much a third party involved to sort of gainsay you at every but there, stage but there was a third party sort of blocking in both situations but it was just a negative versus a positive influence in that person's life there's Mike and there's Ferran the two people that they both have in common. Yeah. So there's Mike, who is this destructive influence in both of their lives. For Nadia, it's self-destructive. And for Alan, it's destructive from outside. And then Ferran is a constructive influence in both their lives, a a good friend and support to Alan emotionally, and a co-cat carer for Nadia. Co-cat friend? Yeah. So, was our answer to that, they may or may not be out, it's difficult to say because it's not clear what they were in. Yeah. It doesn't seem like the best answer in the world. They seem to be out. If they are, I think it's because they were able to be in that position that you talked about where they're acknowledging and actively working against, like genuinely working against their like deepest flaws as people. And thus, and thus were able to prevent each other from making the mistake that they made the first time in, while they were in a state where they were unaware of that mistake. So it was like a pure experiment, basically, like an uncontaminated field, if that makes sense. Yeah. Which is why they would have had to have been in crossed universes, I guess. Yeah. Which I, although I do understand, like, that sucks, that's frustrating because you built this bond with this person and now the version of them that you're bonded to is in another parallel timeline. Yeah. I think it's interesting interacting with our culture at this point as well, mm-hmm. because it's an American TV show set in America, 
set in New York of all places, mm-hmm. and it takes these two people that in some way are embodying this sort of independence structure of I'm me, I'm who I am, I don't need anybody else, or I am good at best, whatever. Mm-hmm. And Alan is just walking American exceptionalism, like, <laughs> I am beautiful. That's all America's doing in the world. <laughs> I'll accept your hate mail to unramblingspodcast at gmail.com. Ah. <laughs> uh, but then taking that narrative and saying, no, you, you can't, you can't do it alone. Yeah. No like, man is an island, etc. Yeah. It's, we're, we're all part of it sort of mm-hmm. thing. And like, to varying degrees, you see people getting closer with the other people as well. So yes, definitely. like, I think Alan and Ferran's relationship reaches an interesting point by the point that Alan's in the separate universe. Like, the conversation that the two of them are having, like, Alan is clearly being much more open to Ferran than mm. he's ever seen. Perhaps... Perhaps too open, some may say. Um, <laughs> with the whole thing about sleeping with Nadia? Yeah. <laughs> that was so awkward. <laughs> Wait, you and Nadia? Oh, no, no, no. Well, I mean, there's that one. But anyway. <laughs> um, but then with Nadia, when she comes out of the bathroom and everyone's back and mm-hmm. she's going around, and, you know, yeah. we're sort of reconnecting with everyone and sort of recognizing this, like, we're part of a community. We're not mm-hmm. an individual. And I think that that doesn't come out of nowhere, too, because in the the few iterations before that when like before nothing is rendering and it's just a horror show nadia starts like trying to drag maxine and lizzie with her on her adventures because she doesn't want them to not exist yeah and things like that and so she starts you know trying to stay close to them physically and like being very worried about their well-being and stuff so i think that that's part of that overall progression toward trying to be more connected yeah that makes sense Like, Alan already seemed to, like, want to sort of have these connections. He's just, he seemed to just have a hard time establishing them in a genuine way. Like, there's the stuff with his neighbor who he tries to get to feed his fish, and that's clearly not really a particularly strong connection. Like, he tries to talk to the older neighbor that he holds the door for, and, like, the neighbor clearly isn't listening to him and stuff. Well, I mean, he sort of talks about himself to each of those people, which is kind of his problem is that he's very much inward looking that's true he wants other people to love him mm-hmm. rather than him to go out and understand it's like, that not knowing his girlfriend's dissertation subject after dating her for nine years is yes. like how the hell as you say how the hell do you get that far yeah. not at least having a better vague idea than he has yeah definitely and he has the gall to call nadia self-absorbed but, uh, but yeah. yeah okay so we're saying that they may or may not be out of this place, mm-hmm. depending on how we define that. But they get there by sort of not only coming to terms with their own flaws, but being able to communicate some form of the solution to another person mm-hmm. to get through it, not just on their own. Yeah. It's another person who's not contaminated by awareness of all of the timelines. Well, no, because the it's that, like, Nadia tells Alan, who knows all about the timelines, enough about herself that he can then save the non- Corrupted Nadia. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So I think that answers the big question, but I think the bigger question is, what is the cringiest moment in Russian Doll Season 1? I feel like there are several contenders. (sighs) I mean, any scene where Mike talks about sex? Yeah. Yeah. He is, um, pretty awful. 
not the cringiest moment, but I do think one of the most like hilariously, wow, you're a douchebag moments for Mike is the point where he asks his student who he had clearly been hitting on and like kind of, you know, trying to seduce to tell him how his hair is after Alan has busted in and attacked him and broken his mirror. And he's like, without the mirror, I can't tell. And she's just like looking at him like, what? Yeah. But I mean, like all the scenes of like, the sex stuff with him and Nadia is very uncomfortable. Also, like the like Alan and Nadia sex scene where there's like a they're like pretending to be Mike and Beatrice. Like that's yeah, that's, that's pretty. That uh, was super weird. So what I'm saying is, sex with Nadia is the cringiest thing. Do you have any other good contenders? I mean, I was probably going to go with the, like, their weird roleplay thing until Alan is, Alan is just not into it. And But I have to commend their uh, um, appropriate depiction of, you know, being clear about not being into something that your partner is doing and, you know, changing your mind, withdrawing consent. Like, he has decided, I'm not comfortable with this roleplay. This is really weird. Let's just have sex without that stuff. And she's like, cool, and that's fine. And then they're on the same page. And, you know, I appreciate that being shown that, like, he's like, no, 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 this isn't doing it for me. Yeah. But, it, but it was horrible. And I'm, I'm, it seemed to be just as cringy for him. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, it was a thing Nadia was like, this will be hot. And he's just like, okay, no. (laughs) Yeah. No. In a very different way, the body horror part in episode seven, where she pulls the shard of glass out of her mouth when she's, like, regurgitating blood in the restaurant. Like, and then her, like, child self is like, she's still inside of you. Like, ah! That also very cringy in a very different way. I mean, like, also that scene opens with her, like, coughing blood up on a child's face, which doesn't really Yeah, matter, that's but... that was pretty bad. But the glass, though, it's the yeah, glass that's the most horrible part. The, her choking on a chicken bone, similarly bad, but without the psychological dimension, which I think really adds to it. You could cut that right into just a horror movie. Nah. So I feel like the top ones are that for me and the cringy roleplay. I'm trying to think if there's just anything else in there. There are lots of opportunities to cringe at Mike trying to hook up with people. So, talking about HIV and art criticism. Yeah, I don't know. He's just pretentious douche. Yeah. I think the only other things that I can think of is some of the scenes where she's trying to talk to the rabbi. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of cringy bonus there. Nothing major. No, I think I think probably it's, it's a toss-up between the, the sex and swallowing glass, which... I'm not swallowing glass. A regurgitating glass, I'm sorry. Pulling glass out of your bleeding mouth. Nah. Do we have to pick one? No, no, I, th- I think that we can just say that they're, they're very different ways of being very, very cringy. Yes. Okay, I think that that just leaves us with our fun facts and interesting tangents section. Mm-hmm. There was one thing that we didn't mention which I did want to talk about was with the name of the show being Russian Doll and the way that like as they're going through the multiple iterations, things are getting less detailed over time. Mm-hmm. And the way that when you're opening up a Russian Doll or... Matryoshka. As you get down and they get smaller, they get less detailed as well. Mm-hmm. And also they're hollow, which is, I feel, somewhat reflective of Nadia's emotional existence. Not that she has no feelings, but that she cultivates a lack of real attachments. Yeah. And do you have any fun facts? So I did see in a Hollywood Reporter interview that Natasha Leone agreed with the idea that it is an autobiography wrapped in a mind-bending concept. 
think it's sort of a version of her personal story. She said, thematically, it feels very true to my experience around deciding to become a participating member of life. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you yeah, so validate some of the things that we've said on this. Because mm-hmm. hmm. she's one of the creators as well, right? Yes, yeah. she's like, she and Amy Poehler are like the main writers, and the uh, show conceptually is N- Natasha Leon's like, brainchild. Yeah, and I think that all the creators, directors, and writers are all women. Yeah, I believe so. Which is nice. hmm Did you have anything else? You haven't seen Groundhog Day, have you? I haven't, and you haven't seen But I'm a Cheerleader. Is that relevant to this? That's like the thing that a lot of people know Natasha Leon from. Mm. I mean, that's the, the main thing, is that this is a, it is a convoluted depiction of a lot of actual struggles that Natasha Leon went through. Yeah. Also, you need to see But I'm a Cheerleader, because it's a cult classic, especially a cult classic of queer cinema. Uh, feedback, follow-up, late thoughts? I had some, but now I'm tired and I can't remember what they were. Cool. Well, we'll do those next time. Yeah. They can be late, late thoughts. We have not made up our full <clears throat> schedule for February yet. The next episode should be on Seven Eves, but after that we don't have the list yet, but we will be posting it on our social media soon-ish, so stay tuned for that. Okay, I think that's everything for this week. You can find us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Unramblings, on Twitter at UnramblingsPod. You can use the hashtag Unramblings on there to discuss the episodes and topics that we've discussed and we will try and jump in with any extra elements of conversation. You can email us any thoughts or feedback or suggestions at unramblingspodcast at gmail.com Please rate and review us wherever you listen to us it really helps other people find the show we've got a few ratings and a few reviews in and that's nice, we'd love to hear some more and if we get any reviews in we'll read them out on the show. Yep, thank you for listening to Unramblings, we hope you'll join us next week. I'm sorry, the man who plays Mike, his name is Jeremy Bob. That is not a name. That is two first names. I don't care if you put three B's in Bob. Somehow that's worse, actually. Like, two B's at the end? Yep. He's Bob. (laughs) That's weird.